On uh, Monday of the week that has just passed, uh, this article appeared in the Times. I'm not sure how many of you read the Times. I'm not sure how many of you saw this article, Why Sinning Can Be a Force for Good. And the subheading reads, if, if you're not able to make it out, Pride can trigger success. Gluttony makes you give. The seven deadly sins are not so bad after all. And then the article goes through each of the seven in turn, setting out some of the evidence on the plus side of the seven deadly sins. Here's another quote from the article. On closer inspection, these seven fundamental aspects of human nature are far from sinful or even uniformly dysfunctional. They are largely adaptive psychological and behavioral tendencies that not only benefit ourselves, but also others. Intriguing. Intriguing. Turns out the writer of the article has just published this book, The Joy of Sin, which is described on Amazon as a fascinating scientific look at why the seven deadly sins are actually good for us. And so this series that we're doing here on Sunday nights at the moment may be rather timely. And it certainly acts as an attempt to challenge the idea that sin is a joy or is in any way good for you from God's perspective. But the interesting thing is, when we come to the deadly sin that we're thinking about tonight, anger. It's actually quite a complicated one. Let me read what Simon Lamb writes about anger in this article. Anger is the emotion we feel when we experience obstacles in pursuing our goals or when somebody else commits an injustice. And it is a feeling of anger that drives us to overcome such obstacles and to punish the perpetrators to restore social harmony, which are both clear positives in my mind. And you see, there is something about that comment that actually resonates. Because surely in a world full of injustice, it is hard to imagine what is a right response, a Christian response, that doesn't include anger. Is anger not an appropriate reaction to cruelty or injustice or needless suffering? Is it not, in fact, a healthy and God-given, God-like emotion? We're going to tease some of this out. I'm not just going to leave questions like that hanging because that probably would provoke some to anger but some people in fact lots of people have also said that anger can fuel great passion and creativity the church reformer martin luther said this when i'm angry i can write pray and preach well for then my whole temperature is quickened my understanding sharpened and all mundane vexations and temptations depart. So maybe anger in the right place can be useful. Maybe anger in the right place is even necessary. 
But as Aristotle said, anyone can become angry. That is easy. But to be angry with the right person to the right degree at the right time for the right purpose in the right way, that is not easy. And so let's bring God's word to bear. Let's bring it in at this point. And although these are familiar words that I'm going to show you, they are incredibly important words as we discuss this issue. And in a sense, this is kind of the the key text for this evening. Paul writes this. In your anger, do not sin. So clearly, it is possible to be angry and yet not sin. But it's also very possible to be angry and sin. That's why this is such a complicated issue. Now, I'm also aware that in trying to do this justice in sort of like 20 minutes is very difficult, probably impossible. But it seems or it would appear that there are two kinds of anger. Please, what I want you to do tonight is engage with this as much as possible and do challenge me afterwards. The thing about challenging me afterwards is this. I've got to go to that Eurovision thing, so I'm going to be out of here as quick as I can. So if you really do want to challenge me, you need to do it via email during the week. But do, do think this through with me. But it would appear there are two kinds of anger. One that is good up to a point, and one that is not one that is bad. The first kind, righteous anger. A righteous indignation at sin and evil and injustice. It's the kind of anger that God has, the kind of anger that God expresses. We all know God gets, God got angry. You cannot read the scriptures without being faced with that. As a church, we are currently spending Sunday mornings listening to some of the so-called minor prophets. And we're being confronted by images of God as a roaring, thundering lion. But what we're discovering is that the things that make God angry, the things that awaken the lion, are the sins of idolatry and also the lack of mercy and compassion being shown to others, particularly the poor and needy. In other words, whenever people disobey the great commandment to love God and to love their neighbor as themselves, God's righteous anger is aroused, but it's fueled, it's underpinned by justice and love. It's never rash, it's never vindictive, it's never loveless in any way. And so we need to remind ourselves of a verse like this, the Lord is gracious, he's compassionate, he is slow to anger and rich in love. And whenever we we come into the New Testament, we discover that Jesus got angry. Now, generally, everybody immediately goes to the incident where he clears the temple. I I don't want to go there. Instead, I want to read some verses from Mark chapter 3. If you do want to follow me, please feel free to grab one of the Bibles that are in the pews. Mark chapter 3. I'm just going to read the first six verses. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue... And a man with a shriveled hand was there. And some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? They remained silent. Jesus looked at them in anger. deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretched out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out 
and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Jesus is angry. He's angry at the lack of love that these Pharisees have for another human being. He's angry at the hardness of their hearts towards some other fellow human being who was in real need. He's angry because they're far more caught up on rule-keeping, self-promotion. They're far more caught up on tripping Jesus up. And so Jesus is angry because he loves the man with the shriveled hand and because he can see the Pharisees don't. And it arouses his anger. And Jesus is also angry because he loves the Pharisees. And he was frustrated at their hardness. He was grieved, it says, at their hardness of heart because they won't let God's love reach them. And so what do they do? The minute this incident is over, they go out and they plot to kill. So the right kind of anger is a righteous anger. And when it is good... Here's a great definition for me of righteous anger. When it is good, anger is a passion for justice motivated by love. And so there are many things and many situations of injustice where people are being abused and oppressed and downtrodden and taken advantage of and trafficked and sold and ignored. Situations where there's gross unfairness, where there is bullying that we should be angry about. But in Paul's comment, and and this is where it gets very, very tricky. Because in Paul's comment, it seems to be that in your anger you can sin. You can cross a line somewhere. And it's a very fine line. And our anger can get out of control. It can be selfish rather than just. It can be caused by resentment and malice and bitterness. It can be caused by a desire for revenge rather than motivated by love. And so, as Rebecca de Young writes, while admitting that angry anger can be a natural, healthy, God-given emotion, we have to come to grips with the fact that more often than not, our anger burns out of control. And it is so hard... And, when you come to talk about this, and when you come to talk about righteous anger, and when you come to talk about when does that anger cross the line, I think it is so, so difficult. And at that point when it crosses the line, we're, we're facing the other kind of anger, the one that's not good, the kind that is sinful, the kind that is deadly, that according to Paul, and here's what's really interesting, a few verses after he writes what he does in Ephesians 4.26, he writes this in Ephesians 4.21, get rid of all anger. How do we process that? And this is the kind of anger, it would seem, that causes you to lash out. This is when someone does something or says something that angers you. But then, it's how you express it. And if how you express it is destructive and disastrous, that's when it becomes sinful. That when the person does cut you up in the traffic, okay, in your anger, but then you scream at them or signal to them. Or to the waiter that brings you the wrong order, anger raises, then you ridicule that person. Or the person who tackles you on a football pitch, anger raises, then then you verbally abuse them. Or the person who annoys you at church and the anger raises, and then you walk away and you talk about them behind their back. 
in your anger, you sin. Maybe even the anger has been sparked by a sense of injustice. But then you say things and you behave inappropriately. And the damage is done emotionally or physically. They're left reeling from your outburst. The damage is done to the relationship. And whenever that happens, it's wrong. But anger, like so many of the sins, they usually damage and hurt those who perpetrate them more than those who are the object of them. So as one Roman philosopher said many, many years ago, anger is an acid that can do no more harm to the vessel in which it is stored than to anything on which it is poured. It's a telling comment. doesn't mean you should turn a blind eye to the pain and the hurt and the mayhem that poured out anger does cause others, but it simply reminds us that the vice of anger, vicious anger, the wrong kind of anger, ultimately eats away at us. It corrodes our souls. It negatively impacts our spiritual formation, our character development. And so the question is, well, how do you then handle this? How do you keep a handle on anger so that it doesn't get to this point, so that in your anger you do not sin? How do you, how do you work through this? It's interesting, going back to that Times article, here's what Simon Amlin writes next. Although the feeling of anger has much going for it, The expression of anger also has its benefits. In studies of negotiation behavior, for example, displays of anger have been shown to increase the likelihood that you will get your own way. Anger signals competence, ambition, toughness, qualities that cause others to give in. And I'm kind of assuming that most of us would want to take issue with that comment because is it really all about getting our own way? Is it about causing others to give in to us? Is that not a rather shocking and prime example of self-serving, selfish anger, which biblically speaking is all wrong and always wrong? I believe it is. So how do you deal with it? So as we've said, I want to make this as, as kind of practical as, as I can. Well, one is through what has become increasingly popular, anger management. And of course, there are lots of techniques and courses out there offering all kinds of good advice on how you deal with your anger. And those can be helpful, those can be useful. And as Christians and as a church, we should obviously support those sort of things, encourage those. By and large, there's nothing wrong with that concept. For some people, it can be really helpful. But as Christians and as a church, we also want to allow God's word to kind of shape our thinking, surely. To form how we do life. In order to ensure that we don't allow this sin to easily entangle us. So what is the advice from God's word? What are some of the distinctive perspectives that our faith teaches and affirms regarding anger? Well, one of the first places to turn is to the book of Proverbs where you find lots of godly wisdom about this issue. Let me just show you two examples. Do not make friends with the hot-tempered. Do not associate with those who are easily angered. Or you may learn their ways and get yourself ensnared. Fools vent their anger, but the wise quietly hold it back. Do you know, see if you just took on board those two gems of biblical wisdom, if you embraced them, if you lived them, 
you would save yourself and many others from a lot of unnecessary heartache. God's word speaks so much sense. But let me read another portion of God's word. This time from the New Testament, Book of Romans, where Paul offers some more enlightening advice and perspectives on how to handle anger. It's Romans 12, verses 18 to 20. Let me just read them to you. Do not repay repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, and as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And what you find here is a real paradox. Because a key Christian approach to dealing with anger begins with the notion of the anger of God. Paul actually quotes here from Deuteronomy 32. It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And in light of that fact, what Paul is saying is, listen, don't lash out, don't take revenge. But instead, leave room for God's wrath. You see, if somebody does something to me, if somebody does something to someone else and we sense injustice and we sense unfairness, then in my anger, I'm tempted to take things into my own hands. I'm tempted to want to sort this out my way and sort them out my way. And therefore, in all likelihood, I will react inappropriately, excessively, wrongly, often. But if I believe that there is a God. And if I believe there is a God who does and will deal with injustice and evil, then surely that brings an alternative perspective to bear in certain situations, that I can then leave it to God who is more than able to deal with that person properly, either in this life or in the next. Now, I know there are issues with that perspective. And so as Paul says, it's possible. As far as it depends on you, and that's a key comment, live at peace with everyone. Of course, there's going to be times whenever you need to resolve disputes. There's going to be times whenever you need to deal with tension. There's going to be times whenever you are going to need to protest that unfair treatment. But the advice here is as far as you possibly can, keep anger out of it. That's so hard. And in many ways, that is the virtue to pursue that combats anger. It's the virtue of peace. And the writer of Hebrews echoes Paul's sentiments when he says, make every effort to live at peace with everyone. The apostle Peter instructs us to seek peace, pursue it. And of course, we all know what Jesus taught in the infamous Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. People who pursue and value and recognize the virtue of peace and the importance of making peace are going to be far more sensitive, far more committed to the need to get rid of anger and to ensure that in their anger they do not sin. So Paul's advice is to live at peace with everyone. But did you notice how he then suggests a rather novel way of dealing with your anger? 
don't know if you picked up on this, but there's something quite radical here. Because Paul doesn't suggest that you somehow totally suppress your anger. In fact, you could say he tells you to express it, but he tells you to express it in a very different countercultural, upside-down, kingdom-of-God kind of way. He says, if your enemy's hungry, feed them. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. So whenever somebody angers you, do something very positive for them. Instead of reacting negatively and spitefully and aggressively, which is often how I react, why not react generously and graciously? And in doing this, Paul says, you will heap burning coals on their head. Which doesn't sound like a particularly Christian thing to do. But many of you will know that what this means is that whenever we treat others, those who have angered us with kindness, we leave them often, not always, often ashamed of their behavior. And therefore, we also are able to break the cycle. You see, if we react angrily and aggressively then often it fuels a situation. It prolongs bitterness. It prolongs resentment. Alternatively, you act in grace and in generosity, and you're more likely to take the sting out of a situation and replace it with harmony and peace. So one of the most moving examples of this, and I'm I'm sure some of you recall this, was what took place in October 2006. Charles Roberts there on the left, and his wife had sadly lost a daughter a few years earlier. And he wrote a note that read this. I am filled with so much hate. Hate towards myself. Hate towards God. And unimaginable emptiness. It seems like every time we do something fun, I think about how Elsie wasn't here to share it with us. And I go right back to anger. And then the next day, he left his other kids off to school and he took a gun And he walked into an Amish school in the small town of Paradise. And he shot five small girls dead. Injured five more and then turned the gun on himself. Because you see, anger can be so deadly. But it's what happened next that made such an impact at the time. It's how the Amish community responded. That is such a challenging lesson. Yes, there was anger. Yes, there was such a sense of injustice, and they spoke about that. But how they dealt with it was astonishing. Because not only did they forgive Charles Roberts, and they made that publicly known, and many of the elders from that little community went round to his widow's house and embraced her and embraced her kids. But they actually set up a bank account to benefit his family. And they attended his funeral, some of them, including some of the parents of the kids. In your anger, do not sin. Here was a community that lived and embraced that and also chose a different way that expressed forgiveness and love and peace. So many people thought, you need to get revenge. And they went, no, we're going to react differently. And they heaped burning coals on the heads of others. One final piece of advice dealing with anger that actually comes across in the rest of what Paul says in Ephesus and it relates to the need to deal with it and be ruthless with it before it takes root 
before actually the enemy uses it. And this is what so often happens, but the enemy uses it to get a foothold in our lives. And so Paul writes, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. See, the key issue here is not letting anger bed down with you. Because if you allow anger to get comfortable, if you let it settle, it will fester. It will become deadly. It will blow up. It will wreak havoc. It will be used by the enemy of our souls to his advantage. We've got to deal with anger quickly and intentionally. And in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke about anger and he referred back to the Sixth Commandment. Many of you know this. He said, you've heard it said, do not murder. And then he went on to say, you see, if anyone is angry with their brother, if you're angry with your brother, then you're subject to similar judgment. Which just reveals how dangerous and deadly Jesus believed this sin to be. So what was his advice? Go sort it out. Go sort it out quickly. Go deal with it with that other person quickly. Because if you don't, it will wreck your relationship with them. So, lots of ways to confront combat anger. But if anger is the vice, peace is the virtue, what is the discipline? Because if you've been part of this series, we've been kind of trying to do that. So with pride, it's the vice. Humility is the virtue. The discipline, confession and service. Envy is the vice. Contentment is the virtue. Gratitude is the discipline. Anger is the vice. Peace is the virtue. What's the discipline? Well, let me suggest one. And it's the discipline of silence. James writes, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. You see, our anger more often than not is expressed in our words. I know at times people can lash out physically, but more often than not our anger is expressed in words. Biting, sharp, insensitive, hurtful words. Words we often regret. And therefore, if we can learn to practice the discipline of silence on a regular basis, we might be just less likely to voice off whenever provoked. Do you know, I think it's really interesting how whenever Jesus stood facing a barrage of insults, we read he didn't retaliate, that he remained silent. And silence as a regular discipline enables us to be sensitive to God's voice, to be constantly tuned in for God's voice, to be aware that, listen, God still speaks. It's just that his divine whisper is often drowned out by so much other noise in our lives. Ten days ago, I went on a 24-hour silent retreat. And as I entered that space and that place, I was given this thought. When God's voice is drowned out by the incessant clamor, whether inner or outer, in whatever shape or form, then continuous dialogue with God becomes impossible. An inner monologue with myself, constant chatter with others, the invasion of the spoken word through the press and television are all the ever-present realities in my daily life over which I need to exercise some sort of discipline if I am to keep any quiet inner space in which to listen to the word. How does that address the anger? How does that help us pursue peace? Well, I honestly believe you can challenge me, but not now. That when silence becomes a holy habit, when we regularly create space in our busy, noisy lives to be quiet before God, 
then we develop an increased ability to be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. Plus, listen to what the psalmist wrote. In your anger, do not sin. When you're on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. And so, although we're not on our beds, although I'm sure some of you wish you were, let me just invite you to search your heart now in silence. Because you see, I have no doubt that every one of us here will find ourselves in situations and moments this week whenever we are going to be provoked to anger. No exceptions. Every one of us will. Whenever we will be tempted to vent it in an unrighteous way that potentially gives the enemy a foothold and an inroad into our spiritual lives. And so the challenge remains, in your anger, don't sin. Make every effort to live at peace with everyone around you as far as it depends on you. And consider the regular discipline of silence as you confront that deadly sin.